as we come to Mark's gospel once again, I want to, in this text this morning, exalt the virtues of our Savior. And I think Mark helps us to do that most appropriately when we look at, well, sometimes it's an overlooked text in Mark chapter 6. I know that because after scrambling all week in my study, looking for good commentaries on the text, I found none. So what you're getting here is a lot of study and prayer and listening to other men speak on similar things that have uh, helped shape my thinking. And I pray that it'll encourage you this morning as we come to Mark 6. So let's go to Mark 6. Open your Bibles there with me. To Mark 6, we're going to be looking in a few moments at verses 53 to 56. Again, probably the least commented on passages of Mark 6 that I could actually discover here um, in all my study this week. But before I actually read the text before you, I want us to first kind of review and, and think about what Mark has already revealed to us in this chapter. This is a, a lengthy chapter with a lot of uh, meat, a lot to digest. And I think it's important to review this as we come to, again, this portion that seems to be somewhat obscure to many people and even skipped over quite often. But in the first six verses, here's what we, what we see. This is what Mark's revealing to us. He, he, he's giving us the narrative here of Jesus coming back home. He comes back home to his hometown. And what happens there? Well, he's rejected. He's rejected by the very people who knew him best. And then in 7 to 13, we see him move from that rejection to sending out his disciples really into their first apostolic mission. And then from 14 to 29... We have this, again, another odd text sort of squeezed in here, sandwiched in here in Mark's gospel. Uh, we, we learn in this section about John the Baptist, and we learn about how he was murdered by Herod. And then we go from that immediately to verse 30, which, again, seems somewhat disjointed, but it ties back to verse 13, where we see the disciples coming back to Jesus to report to him about all that had taken place on their mission of replicating him, of representing him as his apostles. And then we come to the, the lengthier section that we've really spent some time on already, but verses 31 to 52. And in this section, we know that this is where we find Jesus gathered with thousands of people in a green pasture as the good shepherd. And there he performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000, everyone present, men and women and children, and he does that with five loaves and two fish. And then at the end of that very amazing, spectacular day, we see, again, sort of an odd thing that happens. Jesus makes his disciples immediately leave that situation to protect them and to train them. And he puts them in a boat. And in that boat, they experience a wearisome storm, a storm that tests their faith even. But then Jesus comes to rescue them. And he does that by walking on the water. And the ultimate way he rescued them was he revealed himself to them as God in the flesh, the I am. And then finally, we come to where we are today in verses 53 to 56. And 53 to 56 are obviously not long, but there's a lot packed in here if you take the time to look. But it takes time to draw it out. But here what happens is Mark's going to give us really kind of a snapshot, a brief summary of what happens immediately after the storm that we see taking place there in the previous section. 
And, and we see right off when we read this, and I'm going to read it in a minute, it's not a text that you just think, wow, there's a lot of spectacular things happening here. This is phenomenal. It's certainly there, but we just tend to gloss over it because we're so familiar with what's happening in this section. Let me read it to you, beginning in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, Jesus, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That last sentence could be translated, as many as touched him were made well, or touched by him were made well. Again, this is a wonderful example of the, the graciousness and compassion and patience and love and mercy of Jesus Yet, it doesn't stand out from the rest of chapter 6 all that much. You notice right off when you look at this little paragraph, it seems a little bit underwhelming in comparison to what's already happened in this very narrative. It's not filled with any spectacular personal encounters. It's not filled with any personal miracles for individuals like Jairus or the woman with the issue of blood. There aren't any new parables given and explained here. There aren't any new doctrines being taught by Jesus in this section. And like I said, sadly, because of that, many people and many preachers bypass it. They either read through it or they even skip over it so they can get to chapter 7, which is extremely meaty and spectacular in and of itself. And I think there's a lot of reasons that we would do that, that we do do that. I think we do it because, first of all, it's just a brief summary of what appears to be, at first glance, to be somewhat redundant, right? I mean, we've seen Jesus do this before. We've heard about all the miracles that he's already performed over and over, public displays of his healing power, private displays of his healing power. We've seen that over and over in Mark's gospel many times, from chapter really 1 all the way through to this point. And, and that's one of the reasons I think we become kind of glossed when we see it. We just see it and we move on to chapter 7. And, and, and honestly, honestly, if you read Mark's gospel and you read down to verse 52, it makes a lot of sense that you would just skip immediately to verse 1 of chapter 7 because they tie together wonderfully. It would be much easier for me to preach it that way than it is the way I'm going to preach it this morning. When you, when you look at what happens here, it would be simple to actually transition from verse 52 and the hardness of the disciples' hearts to the obvious hardness of the Pharisees' hearts that we see in chapter 7 all the way through in this first section. That's one of the reasons that we tend to skip past it. We know something big's happening in chapter 7. But Mark doesn't skip past it, does he? Every word here is inspired by the Holy Spirit for a purpose, including this brief paragraph. So the question for us is, why doesn't Mark skip this and go to chapter 7? Why did he put this brief summary here in this section, the end of the spectacular chapter 6. Well, again, we don't learn anything really new, it seems, at first glance. We don't learn anything new here, particularly about Jesus at first glance, until we take a second look, until we look at the text carefully and contextually with what's happened previous in the rest of Mark's gospel. 
And we need to do so thoughtfully, because I think when we do that, I think that you learn that in this brief summary, Mark is giving us much here. He's giving us much insight into the question the disciples asked earlier on. Who then is this? Who is Jesus? Well, Mark helps us to see a little bit clearer who this Jesus is in this section. And after much study and head scratching, here's what I've came up with, okay? I think that Mark here is is highlighting in this section the very nature of Jesus, and he's doing so in an economy of words here in verses 53 to 56. He's doing that because these words are inspired by the Spirit for our edification and for Jesus' praise. And so what I see happening here is this. I'll give you, I'll give you three points. Mark is highlighting first the immense patience of God the Son in verse 53, the immense patience of God the Son. Then, then he highlights the irrefutable testimony of the Messiah in verses 54 to 55. And then lastly, in verse 56, Mark highlights the immeasurable compassion of the great physician. So that's what I see Mark doing as we look at this text. And so you can see from what I've derived from this, you can see that if we skipped over this, if we bypassed this, we would miss out on some very important insights and highlights about our Savior. So we're not going to skip it. We're going to work through it. So let's first look at the first highlight that Mark points us to there in verse 53, the immense patience of God the Son. Now let me add to that, his immense patience with his disciples And with us. Verse 53. When he had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Now you're going, Randy, I I do not see the immense patience of God, the Son, in that verse. It's because you're not reading it in context. That's why. The verse is actually a summation of Jesus' patience that's revealed beginning in verse 48. So let's look at that. Down to verse 53. So we can feel the weight of the immense patience of Jesus here. Verse 48. Think about who this is. Jesus had sent them out. They went reluctantly. They go out. They're told what to do. And they, they are brought a storm to test what they will do in that environment. And here's what happens. He, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they saw, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Now, these men should have expected him in the midst of the storm. He had already calmed a great storm on their behalf. They should have been looking for Jesus, but they weren't looking. They were laboring in their own strength. And he comes to them, and he even reveals himself to them in his fullness. And then he says to them, you guys still don't get it. You still don't get it. They're utterly astounded because he said this and he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased. 
But he says, you still didn't understand all that had taken place previous at the feeding of the 5,000. I was showing you who I was there. You should have been ready for the storm in your life that was coming and looking for me in it. But you weren't. So what we're seeing here is really the, the, the spectacular and immense patience of Jesus taking shape. In verse 50, it says they're terrified at the sight of Jesus coming to them on the water. And so what's he do? He immediately reveals himself to them as God the Son. It says, do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them, it says. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. They were more astounded by his presence and his revelation here and his interaction than they were the storm they had been in previously. And yet he says to them, your hearts are still dull. It seems like they still didn't fully grasp who this Jesus was, who he revealed himself to be in that storm, and who he had already revealed himself to be in the feeding of the 5,000. They still didn't get it. Does this not sound familiar to you and I? How many times has he rescued you and you weren't looking for him? You should have been looking for him in faith. Look what he's already done for you at the cross. They were still weak in their hearts and their faith. We know they were still weak and they still didn't get it because of verse 52. That ends, right? But their hearts were hardened, dull. Their hearts were dulled by fear, dulled by weak faith, by a lack of understanding due to their indwelling sin that they still battled with. Again, sounds familiar to me. How many times has God delivered you and yet you are still dull of heart and afraid when he calls you into his work and calls you to be his witness on the earth? Calls you and says, I will be with you to the end of the age. But we're still afraid. We still aren't looking. We're laboring. We're trying hard to get out of the situation. Jesus saying, look to me and find rest. That's what they should have learned here. They should have grasped this, but they, they missed it. They missed the very purpose and the lesson that had been taught to them previously at the miracle of the 5,000. And that miracle revealed something to them that they should have been astounded by. And all who were there should have been astounded by when they understood this revelation was given to them by God the Son. And he is there in the feeding of the 5,000 performing what only the good shepherd could do. The sovereign one providing food, if you will, almost ex nihilo. Out of nothing, out of this loaf and this fish, right? If they'd understood that lesson when they were in the midst of the storm, if they'd known that the good shepherd's already provided for a bunch of people who aren't necessarily even believers, how much more will he provide for us in the midst of the storm? And in faith, they should have been looking for him to do so. He was going to rescue them, but they weren't trusting in him. Again, they were laboring and trusting in their own strength. And so when we come to this section and we, we look at this, I, I see the immense patience of Jesus with these men and with us. Up to this point, they, they, they haven't grasped who he is, even though, think about what they have experienced with Jesus up to this point. This is about midway through his, his ministry. They'd been taught by Jesus personally. They had been trained by him extensively, right? They'd been witnessing the miracles up close and personal that he performed. Think about the miracles that they've seen already. They've already seen him steal a storm when they were on the sea. They've seen the deliverance of the demoniac. They've seen the healing of the woman with an issue of blood. Astounding miracles. They've seen the pinnacle of those. The raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And they've seen him care for people who didn't necessarily belong to him. The feeding of the 5,000 displayed that. 
Does he not care for them? Did they not get it? It's so easy for me to look at this and think, man, those guys are thick-headed. But all I have to do is look in the mirror and realize I'm with them. I'm there too often. I'm more like them than I want to admit. Church, that is why Mark includes verse 53 in this brief summary. We are much more like these disciples. Just just look at his immense patience as he perseveres with dull and weak disciples, people just like us. Now, this, this should amaze and comfort us when we see this. And we see his activity here, and especially, especially what verse 51 says. This is, this is astounding to me. We'll look at it in a moment. Here's what I would have done. I'll just tell you this. I come to these guys. They're in the middle of the sea, and I'm like, you guys, you're not trusting in me. You've done this constantly from the beginning. You're just constantly forgetting every lesson I've taught you. I'm going on to the shore I'll see you guys when you figure out a way out of this, right? That's what I would have done. That's not Jesus, though. It would have been just of him to do that, I think, for them and for us. But instead, what's he do? He doesn't rebuke. He does correct, but he doesn't rebuke them. And he doesn't reject them in their weakness, in their lack of understanding, in their dim-wittedness, in their dullness of heart. He comes to them in the midst of the storm, in their weak faith, to strengthen them. To show mercy to them, to care for them, to comfort them, and correct them. He does do that. But then what really amazes me in verse 51 is that he gets in the boat with them. There's the immense patience of God the Son. He gets in the boat. Not only that, folks, verse 53, he goes with them and continues with them in the ministry. I picked you guys. You're going to go with me, and I will sanctify you in the going. That's what he does. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't give up on them. Quite the opposite. He gets in the boat and he continues to train and use them. I want you to understand something. What's happening in verses 53 to 56 is a hard reset for the disciples. You remember at the beginning when he's calling them, they get to experience these public displays of his healing powers. He's starting all over again. This is immense patience. I do not have this kind of patience in and of myself. Only the Spirit could actually do this in me, okay? I'm the least patient man in this room because drive-thrus are always too slow. The guy in front of me is always too slow, right? That's me, but that's not Jesus. So he he does this hard reset for them as if he's starting all over again with these guys. Listen, I've discipled a lot of people in my life. I've been, I've been in the ministry about 26, 27 years, something like that. And, and I've, I've ministered to a lot of people in this discipleship relationship. And after two or three sessions with people who just don't want to learn, my patience is done, all right? But not Jesus. And pray that that doesn't continue with me, too. I want to be like Jesus in this, right? But when I see his patience here, I am absolutely amazed by the Son of God and his love for us. I'm amazed at the miracles that he does continually throughout his ministry here on earth. And listen, all the miracles, though they may not seem spectacular like this section, but every miracle is placed before us for a purpose because they all reveal the mercy and the power of Jesus. But this account, this account does more than that. It not only shows us his compassion for his fallen creation and common grace, but it reveals his patience and his compassion toward his weak 
disciples, his weak people. That's amazing to me. His, his patience here should comfort us today. It should amaze us today. It should motivate us today. It should help us as we think about our own struggles like those of the disciples today. Our struggles with doubt. Does he love me? Does he care? Is he present? Will he go with me? Is this his will? Our struggles with disobedience to what he's called us into as a father and a mother, an evangelist, a missionary. Just think about this. How much patience has Jesus shown you? How much patience has he shown you before you were converted? Think about what he's done to prepare you to the point of contact where you hear the gospel and are brought to faith in him. Think about how he cared for you. He showed patience toward you. He should have killed you when you first sinned against him, but he didn't. He showed you mercy and compassion and patience. He persevered with you to bring you to the point of conversion. But then, not only did he do that, think about how patient he has been with you since conversion. 34 years I've been a Christian. That means there's been a lot of patience exerted on my behalf. Every day. He is immensely patient with his people. Think about the patience he's exhibited to you this morning to get you here when you didn't want to get up. When the fog was hanging and you thought, I could just sleep in till the preaching hour. And if you did that, sorry, you missed a great lesson during equipping hour. But he showed you patience in bringing you here anyway. Church, when we, when we see texts like this, in context like this, we should be amazed by God the Son's patience toward us and our weakness every single day. Our God is alive and he is active. And he is actively showing patience toward us. Now, in verse 53, you can clearly, I think, now see Jesus' patience toward his disciples in that moment. He's, he's there again, like I said, in the boat with them. He could have left them, and he could have came ashore you know, on his own, but no, he comes with them. He doesn't leave them, and here's why he doesn't leave them. He chose them. He chose them. From before the foundation of the earth, he chose them to be his children. Then he chose them to be his witnesses on the earth. And he promises us he will never abandon us. Once he's chosen us in his love, he has set his eternal affections on us. And that is their hope. And that is our hope today. He will never leave us nor forsake us. I think you need to remember that this morning, brothers and sisters. Listen, you need to remember that his patience here with these disciples should show you something very important about his patience toward you. When you doubt his love or when you walk unworthy of his name, we're just like these men. We deserve what they deserve. They deserve rejection from Jesus in their failing moments. But that's not what they received. They didn't receive it because in his love, he was rejected in their place so that we would be eternally accepted by God. That is the immense patience of our Savior right there. So when I study this text and I see Jesus' patience here, I find hope. I find hope for a failing Christian, for a struggling believer. It brings me hope in the midst of all my own personal failures. And it tells me there is hope for my dullness of heart and my weak faith. I'm like the man here in Mark that cries out day and night, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm with him. And he says, don't worry, I'll be with you. I'll help that unbelief. I'll get in the boat with you. I'll go through the storm with you. I will sanctify you in the process because you're going to find that I am present at all times to show you my great patience. I mean, aren't you thankful for that this morning? Aren't you thankful that, that Jesus will never abandon us 
if we really truly belong to him. God will never, saints, this is amazing. God will never treat us the way our sins deserve because Jesus received what we deserved in our place. And the patience of our Savior is now our hope. He is a merciful Savior and he is a gracious master. He will not leave us. He will train us. He'll go through the storms with us. But he'll always provide a reminder of his presence when we look to him in faith. Now, secondly, Mark highlights in verses 54 to 55 the irrefutable testimony of the Messiah. Look at the verses. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Again, how do I see the irrefutable testimony of the Messiah? Well, how, how, did they, how did they recognize him? That was my question. I even came in yesterday to Sherry and I said, my question is, how did they recognize Jesus here? I mean, they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have any resources to look and say, oh, that's Jesus. Well, there, there's some logical reasons we could think that they may have recognized him. I mean, it's certainly true that someone there could have seen him teaching and ministering in other regions and now says, oh, that's, that's the one. That's the one. But what I know for certain is this. I know for certain that his testimony preceded him. I know for certain that his messianic testimony had already spread to all these regions. And, and what, I, what I know is this, that these people here would have accepted that testimony as the hope that they were looking forward to in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Messiah. And, and so that, that very testimony that this, this man is the man who has done all these miracles we can look to him in hope today. Now, I don't think we can grasp how hopeless these people were at this time and in this place. It's hard for us today. But when they heard about Jesus' healing power and his mercy, just think about the leper. The leper brings tears to my eyes every time I think about him because I'm him. In his filth and his defilement, his uncleanliness, he wants to be healed by Jesus. Jesus could have said it. And he would have been healed immediately. But that's not what Jesus does. The text in Mark says he embraced him. He pulled him into his bosom, taking that defilement unto himself and making him clean. They heard these stories like this. And they knew that these stories coincided with the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah who would come with healing in his wings. And they knew that that testimony was true of Jesus and his earthly ministry. Turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah. 35, they would have known this. They would have known that the prophet Isaiah spoke of the Messiah in this way. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's what preceded Jesus. Not just, not just the immediate evidence of those accounts of healing in the past, but this prophetic one. They said, this is the one. This is the Messiah. Look at chapter 53 of Isaiah. Chapter 53, beginning in verse 4. Speaking of the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Speaking of their spiritual Complete healing. They would have recognized this. 
And so we see they accept his irrefutable testimony here because it tells them that, that this is the one who brings hope to the hurting. This is the one that God had promised in the past. He is now evidently doing this on earth. And so that's why I think it says he was immediately recognized when he got out of the boat there in Mark 6. Now, what I think is really amazing here, and I think there's a lesson in it for us, and I'll just make it as a pastoral aside, is what verse 55 of Mark 6 says. Look at how they responded. Not only did they immediately recognize him, but they reacted to him appropriately. They ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. 55 says that as soon as Jesus was recognized, the people immediately ran to tell others about Jesus. Hmm. There's something to think about there. Saints, is that how we respond to the good news about Jesus? These people ran. They ran. They ran about the whole region and they brought the needy and the hurting and the sick and the infirm to him. The sick people on their beds were brought to him and wherever they heard Jesus was, that's where they brought him. It just makes me think that this group of people, though they weren't believers in Jesus, they were Jewish people who recognized him. But they said, we've got to tell everyone there's good news here. The healer has come. The one with healing in his wings is here. So they ran and told everyone they could find, and they brought them to him. Is that not our calling? We who have been healed by him eternally, we have been given the good news of his testimony internally. We know it. Should not we go and run and tell others and bring them to where Jesus is? That is the gospel. Bring them to the word. Reveal the Son to them from the Word that they may be healed. That's a pastoral extra for you there this morning. Let's move to the last point in verse 56. Here Mark highlights the immeasurable compassion of the great physician. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might or might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made Well, again, I think it's hard for us to even grasp the excitement, the immediacy of this event and and the actions that take place in carrying these people from place to place to these villages, wherever they heard Jesus was and and bringing him to them. And and, and he's see these people imploring him. Can we just even touch the, the hem of your garment? Right. We don't quite grasp the desperate condition. I think is why this doesn't necessarily stand out to us sometimes. Understand, though, let me give you a little bit of background, just a hair here. These are desperately needy people. And part of the reasons I think Justin can understand this well and Paul as well. Gennesaret was a densely populated region. It was a densely populated region that was extremely fertile. It was a farming area. And what happens when a farmer's sick? Well, you don't get the crop in, right? They had to have health to survive, you don't understand. I mean, the context, I mean, we take vitamins, we go to the doctors, we, we have all these things to help us. We've all been sick in the last month over all this bug that's floating around, but we've all had medicine and we've had things to help us. They didn't have any of that. And their livelihood relied upon their health. And so when they hear of Jesus, there's a desperation in their heart. And they run to him, they come to him, they follow wherever he is. The lost don't have that unless we tell them the good news. But they're just as desperate as these people. There is no health in them. There's nothing but death in them. 
They have no hope unless we bring them to Jesus in the Gospels. So Mark here, I think, in this this part, he wants us to grasp this desperation of these people and see what what they were doing in reaction to what Jesus has done. When he does that, he, he actually ends up highlighting the compassion of Jesus for these sick and needy people. And again, he does it. I think in an economy of words there in verse 6, and it's a very vivid portrait of the great physician's immeasurable compassion toward the needy. Not necessarily the believing needy, but the needy, the hurting, the desperate. I mean, he arrives there and these people had been without hope in this world, and now they have hope. They've heard about the Messiah who's come. They've heard that this Messiah is full of compassion. And he's able and willing to heal the sick and the needy. And so that's why they implore him that they would even be able to touch the fringe of the garment that he wore and be healed. And they did that based on, obviously, the testimony they'd already heard about Jesus' healing love and compassion to the woman with an issue of blood. They've already heard this. And 56 ends so amazingly. It says, and many as touched it were made well. This is compassionate healing here. This is, in a a sense, common grace to the unworthy. He's extending himself compassionately to these sick and needy people who, by the way, have no thought of following him, no desire to listen to his teaching. They just want his stuff. They just want their healing. He knows this, but he, he stays. And he receives them to himself. What a compassionate Savior we have. Just think what it would have been like if you were alive during that time and you were in the condition that many of these desperate people were in. Maybe you were lame. Maybe you were blind from birth or blind by an accident that happened to you in life. Maybe you were deaf. Maybe you had cancer. You were dying. But something happens. The news that the Messiah has come, (laughs) the Son of God... The great physician is here. And so somebody hears the news and they run and they tell you this good news about Jesus. And not only that, they don't just tell you about Jesus. No, what do they do? They pick you up and they take you to him. And there's, again, a lesson in that for us. It's hard, though, for us to grasp it because we we don't understand the condition of these people at the time. We don't understand their desperation that we we see here in the hearts of these people as they're coming and bringing I and mean, carrying people. Have you ever carried anybody who can't walk? My dad recently has been really ill, and, and I had to go over one night and pick him up. And he weighs about the same as me, but I had a hard time getting him up. He had no strength. He had no ability to help me. This was a labor of love. These people were carrying these people to Jesus because they knew there was good news to be found in him. They're desperate. They had no means of modern medicine like we do. And so, so somehow, somehow we, 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 we can't grab a hold of really how desperate they were. But I know what we can grab hold of. We can grab hold of how desperate they were spiritually. We can grasp this kind of desperation in relation to their spiritual need, their need for spiritual healing and life. The question for us is, how do we respond to those around us like this that are desperately needing Jesus? Those who desperately need to be healed from their sin and sickness of soul. How do we respond to ungrateful sinners who need Jesus? These were ungrateful sinners. And Jesus compassionately labored with them. 
How do we respond? We, we have the gospel solution for their condition. We have the cure. And just like the physically sick, they, they can't see it. They aren't willing to come on their own to it, to receive it. They can't come because they're not just spiritually sick. They're dead. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. They're resistant to God. But we who have been blessed by God and the good news of Jesus Christ, we can carry them to his feet, to the gospel. We have that honor. We have the honor of bringing the spiritually dead to receive life by the great physician's hand through the power of the gospel proclaimed. There's a lesson for the disciples in this about their future mission. And there's a lesson for us in this about our current mission. Back in verse 56... Again, try to put yourself, if you will, in the sandals of the people that day. I mean, think about how amazing this day would have been if you would have been one of these people being healed by Jesus. I mean, what you see is Jesus getting out of the boat with a bunch of guys he should have left behind, showing us his great patience. The people responding to his obvious perfect testimony, irrefutable testimony, people responding and running all over the region, bringing these sick and needy people to him. And then, then... He is the son of God. He has big priorities, big things he needs to do. He's got a purpose for which he is there for. And this isn't immediately what it is. It's down the road a ways, about a year and a half away. But what's he do? He doesn't leave this region immediately. He takes time to compassionately heal and touch these people. What an amazing savior we have. That's the testimony that we see over and over again in the, the gospel of Mark. They testify over and over again in in Mark to the public healing power of Jesus in these crowds where he comes and he he touches them or he speaks to them and they're brought health and life. And and all these accounts are there for a purpose. They're all there to, to highlight his compassion and his sovereign authority over sickness and death and sin. And all these accounts are highlighting his very nature as the son of God when they do that. And what Mark is, I think, making clear to us by repeating this well-known narrative about Jesus healing the sick is he's saying these healings weren't rare, but you need to understand something. Here's why they're here. They are to be revelatory. They're revealing something about Jesus's nature to us that we need to understand and then we need to respond to. All these testimonies, all these accounts of his authority and his power, his compassion, his patience, they all demonstrate One thing very clearly to all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. They all testify and demonstrate that he is indeed the son of God. And as son of God, they also reveal he is compassionate towards sinners. He cares about his creation. Now, in many reform circles, I almost get the feeling sometimes that people think that he only cares about reform people. That is not true. (laughs) He certainly does care about us. But the creator who brought life into this world cares about all the life that he's brought into this world. They're all made in his image to serve him, to honor him, to praise him. And he cares about everyone. Maybe not in a saving way, maybe not in a covenantal way in the way he loves us, but in ways that are too deep for me to understand. Listen, Paul had quotes by an evil dictator up in his presentation this morning, Adolf Hitler. I see nothing lovable about Adolf Hitler. But God showed him great compassion in allowing him to take his next breath every day. He didn't deserve that. He will be accountable for that to his creator. But Jesus, the son of God, is compassion in his nature toward his suffering and sinful people. 
I think verse 56 makes it clear how deeply he cares for all mankind, whether saints or sinners. After all, they're all his creation. And let me tell you why I say that. In verse 56, what we know is this. These people show no interest in anything other than their immediate relief. They are not interested in following Jesus. Yet, what's he do? He heals them. Why? He is a compassionate creator. He heals them out of his compassionate common grace and his love for his creation. I mean, these are desperate, suffering, needy people who who are begging him to give them something. They want relief. They don't want to follow him. They don't want to honor him. They don't want to serve him. But they want the stuff that he can give to them. No one there was interested in him. And amazingly, what's he do? He knows this. And what's he do? He still graciously, compassionately bears with them and heals them. This is highlighting the very nature of our Lord and our Savior. He knew that they had selfish desires. He knew they had a lack of interest in him. They didn't want to hear his message. But notice this. That did not limit his compassion toward them. He extends it anyway. And that is humbling to consider. I want to be like this. And I'm often not. I mean, just look at his reaction to these needy, ungrateful sinners here. It just continually shows how compassionate he is toward them. He he bears with them. He stays with them. My question for me and for you is this. Are we willing to do the same thing for the sinners around us today? The one that always, always wants to push your buttons. The one who always wants to argue about the truth of the gospel. The one who is always complaining. The one who is always annoying you. Are you are you willing to show him compassion the way that Christ has shown you compassion, both before your conversion and after your conversion? Think about this. Think about how often he has shown you compassion when you fail to do the very thing that I'm saying. Think about how often he has shown you compassion when you fail to follow his example and his commands. Should not that make us want to be more like our Savior and caring for people? Think of his compassion in feeding the 5,000 ungrateful people who he just encountered. Think of his compassion toward his dull and weak disciples. I mean, Mark is making it impossible for us to miss the immeasurable compassion of Jesus here. And, And I hope you see it. But more than that, I hope you are resting in it as his people today. Listen, our Lord's compassion toward us isn't restricted by our struggles with weakness and lack of faith. No, not at all. The disciples prove that. His compassion toward us is not less than it is toward this sick and ungrateful multitude, is it? And I know, I know that you must believe that, but I want you to be convinced of that today when you think that Jesus just doesn't love me because I don't stack up. I've fallen short. I want you to be convinced that he does compassionately bear with you and will be with you to the end of the age. You should be convinced. You should be more convinced than the people were when they actually read this for the very first time in Mark's gospel. We have more evidence than they do of Jesus' compassion toward us than they did at that moment. We have the cross of Calvary that displays the compassionate love of Jesus in ways beyond measure. And we don't see the cross in verses 53 to 56, but we see the need of it, don't we? We see the need of the cross because we see the effect of sin on this fallen world. We see it in their sickness and their disease and this death that would eventually take them out. 
So there's more taking place in Mark's little brief summary here than really you have ever probably seen before today, right? There is more happening here than what lies on the immediate surface, but you've got to work for it. You've got to dig for it. You have to look carefully into it. Because if you do, here's what you'll do. You'll end up being led back to the Savior's most compassionate work that he would ever perform on this planet, at the cross. That's where Mark's taking us. Mark's taking us here because that's what all the miracles of Jesus are intended to point us toward. He's saying, look, these, these miracles and these needy people, they point to mankind's desperate spiritual condition, ultimately. And that condition can only be healed by Jesus the great physician of the soul. So all these healings that he does in his ministry on earth point ultimately to his saving purpose for coming into the world. This, this, multiple, this multitude of people here, they didn't see that immediately. They just saw their desperate need. They wanted temporary relief. They wanted him to pr- provide health and wealth and, and comfort. But that's not why he came. That is not why Jesus came. It's not why he's would stay with these people either. He didn't stay there to be their king to provide all their things that they wanted in life. He would leave them and move on. He's moving on to do a greater work for them. He goes on to set his face like flint toward the cross. And he does that because that's why he came. He came to address mankind's deepest need and most serious issue. And that issue is this. The offensiveness of our sin before a holy and righteous God. That's why Jesus compassionately came into this sin-sick world. Saints, he came to die in our place in order that his people would be fully forgiven by God, reconciled by God, declared righteous before God. And all that will take place by the covering of his righteous blood that was poured out for us at the cross. That's how the eternal healing of Isaiah 53, 4 would be supplied to us. So, church, Mark's brief summary here in 53 to 56 is given to remind us of that. That's where the healing power of Christ will flow from. It's the cross. That's where we carry the desperate and the needy and the sick. We send them to the cross because there the healing compassion of Jesus is poured out in abundance beyond measure. So as you look carefully at Mark's brief summary here today, I do pray that the patience and compassion of Jesus has once again amazed and encouraged you today. But I pray it does more than that. I pray it motivates you. I pray it motivates you to run into the world and lead others to our compassionate and all-sufficient Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for you have given us more than we could ever ask or hope for in Jesus. We have a perfect testimony of your love in the Messiah. We have the compassion of your Son and our Savior at the cross. And your gift that comes through that to us is eternal healing from our sins, reconciliation to you, and the hope of eternal life. Lord, help us to be so in tune with that that when we see those around us that are in desperate need for the gospel, we would run to them and we would carry them quickly to the foot of the cross and point them to Jesus, our great physician and Savior. We thank you for this in his name. Amen.